0: Welcome back to Working Girls Don't Gatekeep, where I set out to answer the questions, what jobs are out there? How do I get these jobs? And what does that title even mean? I'm interviewing women who are in all different stages of their career. Some have been in their roles for many years, some are transitioning into new industries, some are job hunting, and some are business owners, but they all have one thing in common. These working girls don't gatekeep. All right. Welcome to another episode of Working Girls Don't Gatekeep. Today is going to be a fun conversation because I have my cousin, Mary Roach, with me today. And we're going to learn about her career as an author and then how she transitioned out of being a teacher. And her and I actually went to college together, which is a lot of fun. Um, I think we went at the same time. We lived across the street, but now I live in a different state. So this is going to be fun to be able to Catch up and reconnect with Mary. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, me too. And on Valentine's Day. Uh, Yes, Yes, it's a very special day. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. So Nicole and I went to school together and we lived across the street, which meant we got to go on grocery shopping dates with our grandma. It was still a very special time. Um, And then we went very different directions. But I, I love that we get to come together and talk about that. Yeah, for sure. And we used to always play together when we were kids, obviously because we were cousins too. So, Mary, tell me, uh, tell me about you know how you would define yourself in your career right now. Yeah, so I am an author, and that has been mostly full time for the last six months or so. Um, I've been an author for longer, but I moved into mostly focusing on that. I work part time as a marketing manager at a biotech startup, um, but that is very, very part time. Um, and I do um, mostly just focus on writing. I have a book coming out with Disney's publishing house in August, which will actually be my first Ooh, book with yeah, with my name on it, which is cool. Um, and yeah, so I I'm kind of straddling two careers, but I transitioned away from teaching, and I wanted something a lot more flexible. Um, when you have a classroom full of five year olds, you can't really just take a day off because you you want to, um, and I really wanted. I really wanted to have that that flexibility to spend more time with family and do more traveling. And so I I transitioned from there into um, work from home, a work from home position in marketing and focus more on my writing and sold the book. Okay, well, that's a great preview because we are going to dig deep into those. But um, just want to kind of rewind here. Can you tell me about one of your very first or maybe a fun job that you used to have in college or high school or whatever? I'm trying to think because I've had so many jobs. My first first job was pretty boring. I worked at the Burger King in my small town. Um, But I think my first college job that I really enjoyed was I taught self-defense to this um, women's group. So I was a women's self-defense instructor and I went to different student clubs at the University of Minnesota and I taught the women in their groups. And then I taught some groups of like women real estate agents who are often going into houses alone and wanted some extra skills. And so I had been in martial arts for a few years. um, And I really enjoyed working as an instructor through college. I really like that you taught self-defense, especially to realtors, because half the time when I was in real estate, meeting these random people at night in a vacant house, I'm like, this could be a set for a murder scene. Absolutely. That sounds like a setup to the murder mysteries I now write. (laughs) It doesn't sound great. (laughs) Well, hopefully in your books, you have some type of character who knows self-defense. I actually tend to include characters who at least know something, because one of my pet peeves when I read or watch something is an author who clearly has no idea how a fight scene should work, trying to explain it. (laughs) And it's a lot of very like comic book style almost of like bam, pow,, <laughs> bam, you know, so it's very silly, and I have to include some a little bit of realism, <laughs> ok. good. And maybe I could learn a few tips from you, too. Yeah, I got you. So then tell me what happened when you were in school in college. Were you going to school to be a teacher? Yeah, I studied education. So I've always enjoyed working with children, and I enjoyed teaching. Um and I taught for about 6 years post graduation. So I I did I studied early childhood specifically and I worked in pre-K and kindergarten. Okay, why did you choose to do teaching? Um ever since I can remember, I always I found it really fulfilling to work with kids and see the progress that they made and help them grow. I felt like it was such a fun time of their age when they're learning to read and they're just making their first friends and also they look really adorable with their like oversized backpacks that are as big as them, which is a really shallow reason to go into teaching. But like, oh my god, they're so cute. Um, and you know, it was filling, but it was also very cute. So, mm-hmm. um, I had Molly on a few episodes ago, and we talked about how she wanted to be a teacher. And it just reminded me that you and me and Molly, all when we were kids, would always play school. We would. Yeah. I I think we kind of as the oldest daughters of our respective families took turns kind of bossing everybody around. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I think we all enjoyed ourselves. I'm not sure about our younger siblings, but that's fun. <laughs> yeah. We were probably good at that. We were. Um, okay. So you were in teaching for six years. Six years is a long time to stay in an industry and a profession. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that experience while you were there. There is a lot that I liked. I think any teachers who are listening can relate to how hard it was to teach during the pandemic. So when everything shut down, I think it just got so much harder to do the job that I loved. And then when I was trying to teach on Zoom to four and five-year-olds, it just really wasn't working. And I didn't feel like they were getting anything out of it. Um, And then going back into school and having kind of the chaos of those first post-COVID years was just it was a lot of stress on on my health um, and just not – it was not the career that I had kind of signed up for. But in the early years, I really, really enjoyed it. I I counted up recently and I have taught over 100 children to read, which as an accomplishment in my um, – you know, still in my 20s, I felt like that was really special that like in the world there are 100 children who know how to read because of like the input and impact I had on their life. And I think that was really, really special. I, it was all worth it just – to have that kind of impact. And I still hear from some of those students who are now in you know middle school, um, they still remember their pre-K or kindergarten days, which is really, really special. Wow, that's a huge, huge impact. And I feel. I bet it feels really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really enjoyed, sometimes I was able to teach two or three siblings in the same family. So I taught one child one year, and then I taught their younger brother the next year, a few years later. And I found those connections to be so rewarding, too, to have this kind of impact that ripples across an entire family. I really felt like teaching was just a wonderful profession in that regard. Yeah. I think it's so cool that your your previous students try to contact you. Yeah, it's really special. I got a, a Christmas card from one family I taught all three of their daughters, um, and they still send me updates. Um, and the oldest is in middle school and is playing sports, but is also like... The champion of this like little book and literacy society that's between schools and it's really special that she still loves reading um because that was something that i teach her to do that's really cool to see how far she like has continued her reading interest yeah really special um is there anything else you want to share on the teaching side of things um, just that you know, it is a really rewarding career and it's not for the faint of heart. Those people who um, stay in that career for so long have my utmost respect because I definitely, after the COVID years, really encountered some burnout and needed a, a change of pace. Especially working with four and five-year-olds. When you said that you were teaching Zoom to four and five-year-olds, <laughs> I can't even picture what that's like. It's chaos. And it also really, most families just didn't log in because if you have a couple kids at home and you only have limited devices and time- you're not gonna really care if your four year old logs in, but your thirteen year old should. Um so sure. it was yeah, it was very chaotic. It was a lot of like, hey, Miss Mary, Miss Mary, look at my fuzzy socks. Oh. Miss Mary, I brought my stuffy to class. Miss Mary, my dad's in his pajamas. Do you wanna see? Oh <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of that. Not a lot. Really no teaching. No, no, not a lot. A lot of you have to you have to mute. You have to mute. Please mute. <laughs> Hopefully your Zoom allows you to like mute other people in that situation because I could see just kids jumping on. Yeah, they absolutely tried so often um, to just unmute, especially like at that age, they really just want to connect with you. So if they see something that they think you'll be interested in, like their fuzzy socks or their dad's pajamas, like they think that's super important because it is important to them. So they're determined to unmute and tell you all about it. Um, Okay, one this might be personal and... If you want, we can take this out too. Um, but how does how does your school and homeschooling background how did that play into choosing to become a teacher? Yeah, I so I was homeschooled during my elementary school years and I enjoyed the part of it that allowed me to have flexibility to play outside a little bit more. Um, but I really When I and I kind of carried that with me as I went in as a public educator, I felt like I could bring some of the good parts of homeschooling, like allowing more unstructured playtime, because we know from research that that is actually where learning takes place. And it's not teacher directed instruction where learning happens, but it's play and exploration and wondering and moving your body. And children aren't meant to sit for eight hours a day and study and learn from us. And so I was able to bring some of those like that real life experience I had of how that shaped my development and growth and the theories and education I got when I obtained my bachelor's degree and I did some research as an undergraduate as well into that and so I really I feel like I had this great blended education version where I one year I told my administrator of my school that I would have all of my pre-k students kindergarten ready and I would spend every day outside and I did through and I I got some grants to get us snow pants and boots for kids who couldn't afford it And then every single day we had several hours outdoors. And by the end of that year, every single student in my class was reading at a first grade reading level because we and it just the research backs us up. Right. So we we know that children learn better when they can move and play and explore. And then I I feel like that is in part because I had that homeschool background mixed with the education that I received, I think the best of both worlds, because then these children got to play and have that unstructured freedom to explore, but they also got the social connections of having friends their age. Oh my gosh, Mary, I didn't know you did that. That's amazing. I want to send my kids to you. (laughs) Yeah, I have played around with the idea of starting my own school for a long time, because I think there's a lot of research-based practices that are ignored in teacher education programs. We know what the research says, and then we continue doing things the way we did in the 1920s. Um, And the way schools were structured in the 1920s and even earlier during the Industrial Revolution was not to prepare children to think critically, but to prepare children to know how to have the self-discipline to work in a factory assembly line. But that's no longer what we're preparing children for. So we shouldn't be using the same sit down in a line, line up, raise your hand, wait, wait, wait all day long, listen, listen, listen all day long, it is no longer a valuable skill for them to have. It's valuable for them to ask questions, to to move, to explore, to wonder, to ask strange, outside the box things. And we need to adapt our education to fit that. So I clearly have a soapbox about this, even though I'm no longer in this uh, in the education sphere. But yeah. Oh my gosh, Mary! Thank you so much for sharing. That's amazing, and I think you're so right that and it's it's it extends beyond just the education system, but like for us to. Pause for a second and ask, like, why are we still doing this? Oh, because we've always done it. Well, things are so different now. The outcome, the the career path, the education path doesn't have to be the same because it's we're not in 1920. We're not even in 1990 like we used to when we went to school. So I'm really proud of you for doing that, and it also shows with the results that all of your kids could read at a first grade level. how beneficial it is mm-hmm. absolutely yeah thank you for saying that i i felt a little frustrated in within the education sphere because i heard so many teachers say well we've always done it this way or yeah. we have to continue that but is it working because we're getting kids to middle school who can't read so it clearly something needs to change yeah heck yeah mary <laughs> Um, there's a school down here in Sarasota and I forget the name of it, but it's, it's new. It just started this year, 2023 in the fall, and it's an all outdoor school. And I think I might have mentioned it to you, but obviously here in Florida, it's a lot easier to do outside school during the school year. Um, it's warm, gets down to 50 degrees at the coldest in January or something, but Mm -hmm. it's a feat for you in Minnesota to have all these kids outside. So, Um, there's also a book, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called 1000 Hours Outside. Have you? Yeah. There, I think there's a corresponding app as well. It was started by a family who wanted to, um, record, like have a thousand hours outside with their family in, in a year. And so there's an app that allows you to like record those events and track your progress. Um, and yeah, the book is excellent. I, I have a lot of those stacked up somewhere from my days trying to convince everyone in my school that they should get kids outside more. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm glad we touched on this because it's actually something that I am interested in as well. I know that earlier this summer you and I talked and I was like, I I personally would love to be able to like somehow homeschool young kids. But the barrier for me is I don't know how to teach. So obviously there's platforms and things like that. But um, yeah, yeah, it's tricky. And I think that like homeschooling has its benefits as long as you're still able to give your children plenty of opportunities to socialize with other children and more than just their own siblings. Um, But yeah, the the ability to teach is really not something that I think a lot of people in the homeschooling community necessarily have, so they struggle with that. And they struggle with finding the right curriculum because it's not like in a public school where they just hand you the textbooks every year. When you're homeschooling, you have to go seek out and find the right curriculum and make sure you're hitting all the different academic points and it's not easy. And my mom really did her research. We were really lucky to have that. She she found good curriculum and she made sure we covered all of the different subjects that we needed. And I felt like I was really well prepared for middle school, high school and college. I, I mean, I graduated with honors from college at the age of 19. I had my wow. bachelor's degree. So like clearly academically, I was fine. Um, but I knew a lot of other homeschooled students who did not have that advantage just because they're their caregiver or parent did not know how to teach or where to find the right curriculum. So it's hard. It's not It's not an easy, easy thing to do. Yeah. And for all the listeners here, I just want to give kudos to my aunt, which is Mary's mom. She's been so ahead of these homesteading times, like before it was cool. She has had a, a sourdough bread that she's had for like 20 years. And mm-hmm. people are just getting into this in 2024. So Patty... Annie knows. She also Annie raised her kids. Yes, she is. She raised her kids on a farm. Mm-hmm. I mean, she didn't shop at Target. I I really appreciate her. Okay. I will pass it on because I, I'm fairly sure she's she doesn't know what Spotify is or doesn't use it if she does know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. All right, Mary. Well, let's transition into what it's like to be an author. How did you decide you wanted to do this? What was the lead up and let's start from there. Yeah. So this is such a complicated field and I've never really had much success describing the entry because it is so convoluted. Publishing is another archaic industry, but I decided at, I think I was 19 or 20 and it was the summer after college and I had not really had time to write during college, but I really enjoyed writing stories. I always had. And I actually, with Molly, who was on here a few weeks ago, uh, Molly and I wrote a book when we were 10 and 8, respectively. And that was our first novel. But we knew we wanted to we knew we knew wanted to write, and we told a story that we'll never see the light of today, but it was a lot of fun to write. We wrote historical fiction, which is such an undertaking for 8-year-olds, but we thought we could do it. <laughs> um, we, we were also convinced that our grandma could be our agent and sell this to publishers. Like, we just... Believed so wholeheartedly in Jean Roach. And honestly, are, I I bet she could. <laughs> um, but she has professional and personal um, experience in being a secretary. And when you're a secretary, you're in multifaceted things. So I don't doubt it. Absolutely. um, Yeah. So then after college, I said, I want to take writing more seriously. And I don't have a lot of time or resources because I'm teaching. But I went... To the store and I bought this notebook and I was like I want to invest in my craft right now even before I have any proof that it's going to go anywhere and I took that notebook and I started writing down ideas for how to fix up this novel I had been writing for a while and then I entered a contest for people who want to be traditionally published and they have like about three to five thousand applicants and then published authors pick a few um I think it was like a 3% entry rate. They pick a few and they mentor your book and then you get some public eyes on it so that agents um, will look at your manuscript. And I was able to get into this contest somehow. But because I had been documenting everything in this notebook, I had been working on this book and the notebook was almost full. And then at the end, I got to like circle the date that I got into this contest. And it was kind of proof that maybe I could make it because I had the first kind of external validation that my work was any good. And from there I was able to um, get an agent and eventually a publisher. But it did take a long time. It is a very slow moving industry. Um, And something a lot of people don't know. A lot of people wanna write a book and publish it. And it's possible to just self-publish anything and put it up on Amazon. But to go through the traditional publishing route, like the kind of books that you see in Barnes & Noble or an indie bookstore, you have to first approach an agent and you send them a query letter that says, here's a pitch for my book, here's a couple of pages, here's my contact information. And then these agents may take weeks or months and sometimes even a year or two to get back. And they might say, no, I don't like it. They might say, no, it's not what I'm looking for. They might say, no, here's some feedback. They might just never respond. And the ones that do respond, they might say, okay, can I look at the full manuscript and consider it? And then from there, they'll still probably reject you. They'll still probably say no a bunch of times. You just have to have so much resilience because this book feels really personal and important to you. But these agents are seeing 300 manuscripts every week in their inboxes, Mm -hmm. and then they pick a few out of there that they really connect with. And so I eventually got someone who emailed me and she said, hey, can we talk on a call? And we connected really, really well. She is an absolute badass and just understands the industry. Then from there, you work with your agent and they send your work out to the editors. You can't send them out yourself. They don't take unsolicited submissions from from authors probably because hundreds and hundreds of people would just send them their work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to get through the first gatekeeper which is your agent and then you take it to editors and it's a complicated process from there. Um, but that was how I started. So at 19 I decided I wanted to take this seriously. I got into this contest and I started building from there over the last several years. Okay, so you got into a Contest. I'm sorry, what happened? How did the contest connect you to the next step? So the contest, you work to polish your manuscript. And then at the end of this phase, they put all of the contestant's information, their pitch letters up on a website and agents come and request from there. And so every agent in the industry knows about this competition and many of them will fight over manuscripts that come out of it because it's such a difficult competition to get into they assume that there's going to be a level of quality, and so they try to fight over who gets those manuscripts first, so it's a huge leg up. Because instead of waiting for six months or a year, you'll get a response like that day, and maybe an offer that night, which speeds it along very nicely. Okay, if someone is looking to join some type of um, audition Mm -hmm. or competition, uh, where do they start, or what is this called? So this competition actually... Closed its doors a couple of years ago. Um, so, unfortunately, this one is not around anymore. There are a few mentorship programs. Um, one that I really would recommend is called DV Pit, and they pair authors who might have more traditional barriers to publishing, like authors who are disabled um, or otherwise marginalized authors, um, with people who can mentor them and support them in getting their work seen. There are not a lot of um, well publishing is still just very full of the older male population than anybody else and so it's harder for anybody who's not in that demographic to break into publishing so dv pit allows people to have some support doing that okay is is the agency or the publishing kind of like big business right now yes publishers so agencies no agents are not affiliated with publishers they just have their relationships with publishers it's like a film agent who doesn't necessarily work with a studio but they'll pitch your your screenplay to studios so they're independent and your agent is on your team and earns a commission from a sale and they go and approach publishers for you and sell the book publishers are congregated into three major publishing houses now it used to be five it used to be six and they keep kind of you know buying all of the small publishing houses and penguin random house is one of the big ones mcmillan is one of the big ones and then they have just bought up a lot of little indie houses so the chances are smaller and the industry itself is it's very it's like corporate world but more inefficient if that's possible <laughs> <laughs> if that's possible i know possible. i know, I know. <laughs> okay um so you, back then, mm-hmm. hold on. all right, so this sounds kind of interesting. It sounds like you, first of all, have to really believe in yourself and your product because you're continuing to hit doors that are saying no. How do you get good and resilient, um, good at pitching yourself and your, your book, but then also resilient? Because from what I understand, you don't get paid until the book hits the shelf, sort of. Yes, almost. So you don't get paid until a publisher buys the book. And so you would do a lot of years of work editing this book and you do a lot of work with your agent editing this book. And then once a publisher makes an offer, most of the major publishers offer an advance. That used to be advance money was there so that writers could afford to work on their book um, until publication. And then from there, book sales go to earning back your advance. So every time I sell a book, whether that's a pre-order or once it comes out, it will go towards earning that advance out. And once I sell enough copies, I will start making royalties. So you usually get an advance um, when you sign the contract generally. And because publishing moves slow, it took six months from them giving me the offer to them giving me the contract and the payment. So it was six months again of just like waiting and having to work another job. so it is not something that's like a viable career until you've already sold a book or a couple of books or if you have a spouse who can support you. Sure. Mm-hmm. Or another job. or Yep, or a second or third or fourth job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then what? That was your first book. And what's yeah. the name of it? Where do I find it? It's called Better Left Buried. It's coming from Disney, so you can buy it. An- Wait, can- that was at 19? Um. No, so I... Yeah, I wrote it at 19, but that's when I started entering publishing, and I got the offer on this book in March of 2021. How many years in between age 19 and 2021? Well, that's some math. I think four or five years of struggling through publishing to get there. Four or five years. When you said slow moving, you really mean it. Yeah, I've written multiple books. So I have written multiple books that actually an agent tried to sell to a publisher, and then the publisher said no. Um, so there was a couple of years in there when I was doing that. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of no along the way. OK, so now what? Yeah, well, now is the fun part. Now my book is there are advanced copies of it out in the world for reviewers and book talkers and people who sell books at Barnes and Noble to read. So my publisher sends out these paperback early release copies that might still have typos in it. If they If you read one and it has typos, no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, and so, booksellers are reading it and deciding how many copies they want to order. And my publisher is doing some efforts to market it so that it comes out with a bit of a splash. And then, when it comes out in August, I will have a book launch here in St. Paul at the Red Balloon Bookstore. Um, and I have, I'll have details to come on that. And then the next day, I will fly out and I will do, I'll hit most of the major cities in the US and I'll do an event every day in a different city. Because the first week of sales are really, really key. They're kind of your chance to make it to those bestseller lists because they're usually your biggest week of sales. So I'm going to be touring the country to talk about my book. Amazing. Um, Who are you talking to? So I have a lot of writer friends around the world. That's been one of the great parts of being in this industry is that I can walk through Barnes & Noble and I can stop at any table and say, oh, I know that person. Um, It's really fun. You... You learn a lot and you get to know a lot of other writers. And I had to make an effort to build that community, but I think it's really, really worth it because now I have writer friends I can stay with in all of these cities and they have connections to their little local bookstores. And I can go to that local bookstore and have an event with another author where we get to just talk about books and we get to sign books and enjoy a night, you know, promoting our books and meeting readers and all that fun stuff. How do you get to know these people? Back in the day, when Twitter before Twitter was X and before it was more of a dumpster fire than it is now, um, <laughs> Elon, don't sue me. Um, I I'm met sure right Elon listens to this podcast, so I'm glad you put that in. Yeah, I, I bet he does. <laughs> I bet he he really wants to know how to switch careers because his is you know kind of dying down. Um, anyway, yes, I so I met writers on Twitter. I met writers, I joined some writer groups and I have a writing Slack group that we, you know, we work together. We'll sometimes co work virtually where we will do writing sprints where we'll say, Hey, let's go and tell the hour together and then um, check in about how many words we wrote. Or we'll send we'll share each other's manuscripts and give feedback. So it's great to have a community and a network where you can send your book out and they can help you with edits before you have to send it into a publisher um, because you kind of want someone to spot check it for you or prepare. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can see how writing writing a book can really consume all of your time. I think that's the case for a lot of people, but because I taught preschool and I multitasked at all times, it doesn't feel that way to me. I think because I've, I was just used to balancing so much balancing a book on top of that was like all right well it's not easy but I can do it okay um is it true that you wrote a book in less than a week yes yep I wrote a book in four days <laughs> four. Uh, so actually the book that is coming out I wrote in six days um on oh. August and the reason I did that is because I wrote it in April of 2020. And my school had just shut down the week before our spring break. And so I now could not go anywhere on spring break. Um, I could not do anything on spring break. And usually, if I had a moment free, I was like on an airplane traveling somewhere new. And so I was sitting at home like, I do not know how to fill, you know, and it, I think it was, you know, what is that? Five days and two weekends. So nine days of doing absolutely nothing. And I was like, I actually can't do that. I'm going to write a book just to see if I can. And so I did, I spent the weekend outlining and figuring out what I wanted to write about. And then I spent the next six days and I wrote ten to twelve thousand words every day. And then I finished. And my wrists hurt a little bit, but I overall can't say it was a bad choice because now this book is being published. So <laughs> yeah how many book How many words is a normal book? So in this genre, I would say about seventy five thousand words would be a normal finished um, murder mystery or thriller. If you're writing fantasy for adult audiences, those are much longer. Those might be 120,000 or 150,000. I would caution writers who are just starting out and who are sending a query. If you have a book that is over 110,000 words, most agents won't even look at your email Mm -hmm. because they assume that you don't know how to edit down and they assume that, publishers will not want to take the risk on a debut it costs a lot more to print a longer book so they're not going to risk money on a debut author who whose sales aren't proven you're not george rr R. martin they're not going to take your your you know, epic because they know everyone will buy his book so they'll invest the money to print it but if you're a brand new author and even if you really think you've got the best idea i would caution those people to let some of that go and try to approach it with as much humility as you can and There's a saying in writing that's kill your darlings or basically that thing that you really love in your book. Be willing to let it go if it makes the book better. That phrase, that character, that little plot line. If somebody, if people are consistently giving you feedback that says, take that out, listen to them, even if it kind of stings, because the only way to last in this industry is to take that feedback and be able to edit your book and be able to listen to the people who have walked that path before you. Um, but that's really hard, right? Because you wrote this story that's so special and you're so sure you need all of those words, but cut your words down if you can. Yeah, if it were me, I wouldn't even know what parts were needed to be taken out. So I guess that's a good another good reason why you have all these peers in mm-hmm. your network that you've been getting to know because they have they come at it with definitely less like protection. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and they know more. They're usually really well-read as well. So they'll Correct. be able to point to recent books that did well and say, hey, this is kind of the plot structure that they used. I'm not sure if the slow pacing in your novel is going to work or something like that. So they're able to give really pointed feedback that is both because they read a lot of books, but because they read a lot in the industry recently, they kind of know a little bit on that, that end too. Okay, so talking about books, how many books did you read in 2023? Oh, this is embarrassing because I don't think I read very many published books. I read a lot of books that are being published this year. I read early copies, probably 40 or 50 books, less than usual. I did a lot more writing this year. <laughs> okay, 40 or 50. What's what's a record in a year? Um, probably about a hundred. Oh, Mary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awesome. I can read a book in a night usually. I just don't usually have a free night anymore. A book and a night, so like three hundred or four hundred pages, probably. Yeah. Wow, uh, that's awesome. My I I hit my record this year. I think it was forty-one, and that's a lot for me. But there's people who consistently read fifty-two, like one a week. Um, but a hundred, you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I I read as fast as I write. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I do everything full full speed. I'll see my head at all times. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this just now. I may not be the best guest to talk about what it's like to be a writer because I don't think that I know any other writers who have written as much as I have in as short a time. So I am probably the outlier here who can't off- offer anything actually helpful, <laughs> but I can tell you how publishing works. Are you a mentor or is there any way that like people could take courses or classes from you? I actually used to mentor. So That contest that I was able to enter when I was 19, I was able to mentor for a couple of years, which was really special to be able to kind of come full circle and give back. And I mentored for a few contests that are no longer running, but I have stayed friends with those people. And some of them have books out now as well, which is really special to see. Yeah, Um, One of my, my first mentees, her name is Jenna Voris, and she has a book called Made of Stars that came out last year, which is a Bonnie and Clyde retelling set in space. And it is so fun. It is this like space hijinks, um, space outlaws on the run from the law, um, romance, and you know spaceships, and it's a lot of fun. So if you are in the mood for a romantic sci-fi adventure, I highly recommend that. But she was that was a book that I mentored her with, and it was really special to see that come out into the world. Cool, uh, um, made for stars, um, made of stars, made of stars um yeah i as for right now there's a lot of publishing competitions have recently shuttered their doors it's hard to run and a lot of times it's run by volunteers hmm. um, but i do offer editorial services so people who are looking for help um, with their first book or their query letters um, and looking for just a set consent of eyes and i specifically offer critiques of fight scenes because i know how they're supposed to work sure. uh, and so a lot of fantasy authors or thriller authors will reach out and will say, hey, can you look at this chapter? It contains a fight and I just don't know how um, it's supposed to look. And then I can go through and say, here's something else realistic. Here's what I would recommend. So I do a little bit of that, uh, but nothing okay. through through mentorship anymore. Is that common? Like people will reach out and when it comes to like specific um, category parts of their book or something? I think it's more common for people to just ask for an editor for their whole book. But when I post about having fight scene critiques, people are like, Oh, that is something I'm not sure about. I see a lot of people trying to crowdsource on TikTok or other social media saying, does anybody know this? And then you get some like, you know, the reply guys in the comments trying to educate you, but they don't actually know either. So I recommend finding someone who you can, you know, their source. And my source is that I've done martial arts for 10 years and I teach it every week. Um, yeah. Okay. Um all right, so I want to learn more about how people get paid in an author role. You mentioned royalties. Mm-hmm. How long do royalties normally last? Um How much Here's what I'm thinking. When I go on to Kindle and there's a free book, like you must be losing money if I do that. Not necessarily. So unless it's a pirated book. Um But if it's free on Kindle Unlimited, the authors are still paid and usually if you have a Kindle Unlimited subscription, those dollars go towards, the subscription dollars go towards the authors who participate in Kindle Unlimited. Um, and sometimes sales are offered just to boost a book's um, status in like SEO and so it's not necessarily a loss of money. It's more of like um, a marketing strategy your publisher might might use. You'll get paid regardless. Um, you'll gain royalties regardless. On okay. multiple. So royalties means you make a certain percentage of each sale. Um, An advance is what it sounds like. So you get an advance of the money that your publisher thinks you will make them. So some people have some really life-changing deals and will get six figures or even seven figures, but that's really, really rare. It's usually a lot smaller than that. Um, it's usually something that's between... 30000 and 50000 if you're lucky. That's still a fairly nice advance. And then it's usually broken into two or three payments. So you get a chunk of that money when you sign the contract, and then you work on your book for a few months with your editor, and then you get another chunk of money when you turn your final manuscript in post-edits, and then you usually get another chunk of money on publication day, depending on how your publisher structures their payment schedule. And then from there, your sales go towards earning back that in advance. You won't make any royalty money until your book sales earn out that in advance. And there are ways to calculate how many you need to sell. Um, it's usually a fair amount of copies that need to sell. Publishers will often offer bonuses. If you sell enough copies in the first year to earn out, they'll offer you mm. another chunk of money to say, hey, like you sold your book really well. Yay, you. Um, which we don't have a ton of control over, but it's nice that they give us bonuses. So, Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, royalty payments can last as long as you live, as long as your book keeps selling. Um, And they can last into your estate until your book enters the public domain, essentially, as long as your book is in print. In print. So that makes a big difference if I'm reading on Kindle versus on a book. Oh, no, I mean, in print as in it hasn't gone out of print, as in your publisher no longer... It prints that book, um, but yes, it Kindle sales you actually get a better percentage of. So when you get a contract in publishing, it will say you get fifteen percent of hardcover sales, twenty percent of paperback sales, thirty percent of audiobook sales, and thirty-five percent of um, digital sales. And it's usually related to the cost that they have to make it. Right, so a hardcover costs them the most to make. Mm-hmm. So you get a little bit less of that. A digital sale, you actually get a bigger percentage of because it costs them a lot less to just format your book for Kindle. Mm-hmm. As an author, what would you prefer people? Where would you prefer people to buy your book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would prefer indie bookstores. Always. Oh yes. Um, I am working with the indie bookstore here locally. So any copy you order from that bookstore will be signed and come with some stickers and bookmarks. So you'll get extra fun stuff if you order it that way. Um, It's called Red Balloon Bookstore in St. Paul, and I can send you the link after this, Nicole. Um, So that would be ideal. But I understand people order from Barnes & Noble or Amazon or those bigger sellers. I believe it's also available from like Target and Walmart. And it's available in Canada from the Indigo bookstore chain, which is like um Canadian Barnes and Noble essentially um but yeah as long as you are buying this book I am happy because that will keep me writing yeah but uh a preference for my little bookstore here I love that one yeah very special so Mary what's next for you in the author world yeah so actually I just turned in a book to my agent And now I'm at this stage. It's in a different age category. So my agent can actually take this to other editors and see if they want to buy it. And I have an unannounced project that I can't say too much about coming from Disney next year. Um, So until I have a contract signed, I can't talk about the title or the content, but I do have more books coming from them. And then I have another project that's actually out with editors right now in a different age category. So I can't send out any other... Murder Mysteries for teenagers to other publishers. I have a contract with Disney. But I can send out adult books or middle grade books or picture books. And so I'm focusing on that now to get more work work out into the world. Well, that's exciting. Look how much you've got going on. Yeah, I recently finished my 20th book. Oh, my God. I my 20th book um, in six or seven years. And... I'm excited to be able to sell some of those and be able to talk about some of those more publicly. Well, congratulations on writing 20 books. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm excited for everything that's going on. Can you remind me the name of your, your current book that's coming out in August and just give us a synopsis of what it is? Yeah, so it's called Better Left Buried and it's a murder mystery for the young adult audience. So the characters are teenagers and it's about a girl named Lucy who is dead set on going on a spring break trip except her mom derails their plans by returning to her small hometown. And Lucy doesn't know anything about her mom or why they're back there, but all she knows is that the night they arrive, a body is found in the old abandoned amusement park. And her mom gets sucked into this investigation, but Lucy decides she needs to find out more about her family's past and how it all connects to this creepy abandoned amusement park. And she crosses paths with another girl who's a bit mysterious and kind of keeping some secrets, and together, these two girls set out on a very misguided attempt to find their own answers. I cannot uh, recommend this for actual teenagers. Please don't solve murders <laughs> on your own. Um, but in fiction, it's fun. So Lucy and Audrey sneak around this small Appalachian town and learn more about her own mom's mysterious past and how it connects to the murders that are unfolding in this like little claustrophobic town where nobody really ever leaves. And so they are up against some... A, Wealthy, powerful family who has run the town for many generations, as well as a lot of secrets that go back many, many generations. So they're out to uncover family secrets as well as murder secrets and hopefully stay safe while they do it. Um, My four year old nephew is very concerned about the two girls on the cover not wearing their motorcycle helmets. (laughs) And I would just like to say, I'm very sorry. I did tell the cover artist not to put helmets on them so we could see their faces, but I agree in general, you should wear them. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> I love a two-person kind of dynamic like this. It sounds like the mom kind of has a story, the daughter has a story, and somehow they're both kind of like unraveling it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about this. I'm for sure going to read it, you know. I already have it on pre-order. But I'm I'm into m- mysteries, and those books, I I love a good book that I don't know the ending to. Yeah, I hope the twists keep you guessing. Um, It was really fun to write. Um, I actually want to take a a moment to talk about pre-orders. Is that okay? Absolutely. Why they're important. So I think generally people who read but don't write have no idea that they're important. and They're just like, oh, I'll just wait till it's in Barnes & Noble and I'll pick it up. Mm -hmm. But on the author side of things, pre-orders are so, so important because they tell my publisher that people care, that there's buzz about the book. And some publishers won't actually invest much money in marketing your book at all unless they see a lot of pre-order numbers come through. So if you have a author friend or an author who you really love and you want them to be able to keep writing books, I would highly recommend pre-ordering because the decision my publisher makes to buy another book from me, um, they make well before the book comes out. So they've already purchased their next book for me and their pre-order sales determined how much they decided to pay me. So getting good pre-ordered, really, really important. And Nobody really knows this outside of publishing, so it's kind of silly that publishers see that as a gauge of success at all when readers don't. (laughs) Right, this is unfortunately how the archaic machine of publishing works. So um, yes, pre-orders are really, really important and Barnes and Noble regularly does pre-order sales for 25% off, so Mm -hmm. if you keep an eye out on your favorite authors, they will post about it with their little Canva graphics, we all do. And, uh, yeah so that is that is something super important so thank you it means a lot that you've pre-ordered yeah well let's get some more pre-orders for you <laughs> grandma has already suggested calling every Barnes and Noble in the country which I appreciate <laughs> <laughs> that's so sweet that's so sweet I love it um okay anything else we want to talk about your book it comes out in August August what August 6th doesn't matter because we're going to pre-order it anyways. So it's just going to show up at our house. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, August 6th. And you can order, I'll put all the links in my show notes so that they can order from the best way for you. Um, And then I want to ask kind of a fun segment. So really quickly, do you have any TV shows or brands or clothing items or recipes or anything that you love and want to uh, share with us? Ooh, well, I already plugged that book, Made of Stars, which is one of my favorites. But if you are a fan of romance, my friend Ruby Barrett just released a book called The Friendship Study yesterday, just in time for Valentine's. And she writes the most like, gorgeously romantic books with like heroes you fall for. And that is something that has really um, captured my attention recently. So that's a book that I've been loving. I am an absolute other media let's see. Um, well, there's a Taylor Swift album coming out, but we all know that. So I don't need to talk about that. Um, and I've been watching, I know I'm really late to this, but I've been watching The Last of Us and I thought I was past my love of post-apocalyptic shows because it's no longer 2012 and Divergent isn't coming out and making us all like crazy little fangirls, um, or Hunger Games and all of that. But I loved The Last of Us. It was so like beautiful and poetic and as a writer, it really made me want to, um, write something like that. I wish publishing would let us write Dystopia again, but it was gorgeous. And Pedro Pascal is my husband. So I don't even know the show. Okay. I just looked it up. <laughs> I think it's based off of a video game, which I have no context for because I don't game at all. So I don't know if it's like the game or not. I can't oh, speak I see that. that. But yeah. I like the show a lot. Would you ever want to write for a show or a TV or is that way different? I would love to. You, uh, There's a screenwriters guild, so you actually get, yeah. like, Segafstra. That's what I call it. Segafstra. It's not <laughs> yeah. called that, but um, the, there's a podcast called The Toast, and for some reason they started calling this, say, I don't know what it's really supposed to be called, but I call it Segafstra. That's, like, the acronym for the, for one of them, I think. Okay, because they just yeah. had the strike, that yeah. one. It, it. Um, Yeah, they, they've been able to band together as writers a bit better than authors have so I would love to be part of that I think it'd be really fun to write for television yeah Uh, oh and I am on Goodreads and I saw that your book is already on there so I'll put it as a want to read to be read yeah that's also helpful so Goodreads numbers are also something my publisher looks at so if you and it's a free way to support so you can um, add to Goodreads or you can even request that your local library carry it so if you put in a little request like that the library itself might pre-order which obviously helps so anyway okay. okay i also just rated it um mary one question i ask everybody is what is one piece of advice you have or what is something that you as a working girl want to keep i think that the best advice i have publishing related or life related is keep going and set your own course like don't listen to anybody else don't listen to the noise. Don't listen to people who are trying to tell you that you're not going to make it because only you know your strength and your limits. So just keep going, chart your own course. The noise will still be there if you ever want to listen to it. But my, my advice is to press on. And if you chart your own course, it's going to be somewhere a lot more beautiful than following the beaten path. Mm-hmm. I agree. I like that a lot. Cool. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today, Mary? I think that's all. Thank you so much for having me. Publishing is, I could probably talk about how it works for like three hours and it would still be pretty hard to understand, but people can reach out. I'm on public social media, so if people have publishing questions, I'm always happy to answer. And it's Mary E. Roach because there is a Mary Roach author as well. There is. She writes like nonfiction and she and I actually might do an event together. Just for fun, because we have the same. Yeah, <laughs> that would be cool. Very cool. Yeah. OK, well, Mary, I learned a ton about this because it's an industry I'm really only a consumer of. So it was cool to see the other side of things. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on and being able to talk about both books and teaching was really fun. True. Yeah. Yeah.